Next on Hype Woman, we speak to founder and CEO of Hustle Crew, Abadesi Osinsada. She's the author of Dream Big, Hustle Hard. This year, she was featured in Forbes' list for 25 black business leaders to follow. She's here to shed some light on what it's like to be a black woman in the tech industry. So if you're curious on how to build a career as a woman of color in the tech space, then listen up. So welcome to Hype Woman, the podcast. Today, we're talking to Abadesi Osunsada. You have quite an interesting background, being a, a third culture kid with a biracial identity. Maybe, yeah, tell me more about how this has shaped you as a person. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I think there are probably like more and more people that identify as, you know, multicultural, third culture, which is fantastic. I love yeah. Instagram accounts like Mixed Race Faces and, and yeah. hearing people's different stories of what it's like to grow up with, you know, multiple identities in a household. I think certainly for me, it's just felt like normal. You know, that's all yeah. I ever really knew. And I'm really privileged in the sense that I was able to spend my childhood in countries like Tanzania and Kenya and really in an international school environment where yeah. there were a lot of people like me, people whose parents came from different countries, people who'd lived in different countries. And I think it's something that I always just enjoyed being a part of just from a really young age. Like, how can I be in a, in a diverse environment? How can I be around lots of different ethnicities? How can I appreciate lots of different cultures? You know, thinking of my maybe like third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade experiences in Tanzania, it was just completely normal for there to be, you know, girls in my class that were Muslim and like, you know, started wearing headscarves soon. And I would like go to their house and eat really cool food. And like, um, you know, I would like listen out for like calls to prayer because I knew that that was like what the mosque was. And like, I knew about that part of their culture from them. And I I think there's something quite incredible about growing up in multicultural environments, whether that's by virtue of, you know, your parents or even just the community your parents have chosen to live because yeah. you don't really notice differences. They just become like a part of the tapestry of you your see. life. You were born in the US and now you're currently living in London. Yeah, exactly. So my parents, my dad's from Nigeria and my mom's from the Philippines. They, you know, they moved to the U.S. They raised us in the U.S. Uh -huh. they, they made the choice of leaving their, their home countries for bigger opportunities for their career. And I actually came to boarding school in the UK when I was in my teens. Wow. And that, well, it's just a culture I really enjoyed being a part of, even though it's like quite cold, gray country. It's also really close to other parts of the world. So unlike the US, which can sometimes feel a bit isolated, the UK is so close to the rest of Europe, to Africa, to the Middle East. So I really just kind of like placed down my roots here, I guess. I'm, I'm married now and my husband's English, so yeah. So this is where you're going to be at. Yeah, but it, it's really interesting. And why I think I find, you, find it really fascinating is because, so I come from South Africa. I'm now living in Germany. And growing up in South Africa, I was just always very aware of what a multicultural society we have. And then moving to Germany, and <laughs> it's not as multicultural, or rather there's a very dominant presence of a German, how do you say, norm. And everything <laughs> has to like sort of fit into that. And yeah, this is very different for me. And raising a child that is bicultural, I kind of want to influence her identity and how she, um, how do you say, how she finds her confidence, I guess, in a place where she's 
probably not going to be the majority, but at the same time is just as important. How did you find your, like, how did you build your confidence? I mean, how did your parents influence that? Yeah, it's incredible. I was uh, watching a clip of Elaine Wentworth, the, you know, she worked at Teen Vogue as the editor and she was describing the experience of being in preschool and being asked to make a family collage. And her yeah. father is white and her mother is black and there were no black people in the magazines. And the first thing she felt was shame. Yeah. So she just copied her white classmates and made an all white family collage brought that home and her mom said, "Uh uh-oh, you know, we've got a problem here. (laughs) So her mother brought the whole family around the table and got out magazines like Ebony and Essence and started cutting out, you know, black characters and they they redid this activity together. And I just thought, wow, that is so amazing. Like my parents definitely didn't do any of that stuff. For me, they were just so busy trying to, you know, get on with their own lives and probably like survive, you know, the feelings that they were feeling as outsiders and and as excluded. I think one of the things that I think about a lot is this default being white in all of the spaces I'm in, you know, whether it's the US, whether it's the UK, whether it's the tech industry, whether it's entrepreneurship, even the corporate world, the default is white, the default is male. So I'm always by default, the outsider or, or one of a few, a marginalized and the minority. And I think one of the things that has really changed generation to generation is a vocabulary and a dialogue around privilege, yeah. male privilege, white privilege, and also a dialogue around structural racism. Yes. I think my parents made those really best intention decisions to do things like not speak their native language at home in the fear that it might change our accent and and make us even more likely to be left out and excluded, you know, even more so than the color of our skin. And now it's so funny because I feel like a lot of people in my generation are like upset that they don't know their mother tongue. And it's like embarrassing, (laughs) you know, you go back to visit your relatives and you can't do anything other than the basic greetings. And it's like all of these things have really started to, to shift and change. So I think to your point now, it's like, if the pendulum went too far in terms of assimilating, it's now kind of like swinging the other way where yeah. it's like you see people, you know, giving their children a native name, even if they are half white, teaching their kids about that, that culture and that language. There's so many children's books that feature, yeah. you know, people of color. I definitely, you know, I'm in my 30s now, so I grew up not seeing people like me uh-huh. in the literature I read in aspirational roles in the media that I consumed. And I thought that was just normal. But now what's so incredible is like, you know, we've got like Kamala Harris as the vice president elect. There's a whole generation of people where this is just how it's always been and that's okay. You know, Rihanna, one of the most successful musicians is also now one of the most successful fashion designers and (laughs) entrepreneurs. So I just think it's, it's such a great time to be alive. And I wonder how different my life would be if these were the role models I could have had growing up. Because while I'm a confident person now, it's only really happened in the last few years when I chose entrepreneurship, because you can't really be a successful entrepreneur unless you're good at selling your story and selling your business and selling yourself. I wasn't actually confident where it mattered before this. Like I did my job well, and I was really diligent in every role that I had done, but I didn't take the same kinds of risks that I could see my male friends and male peers taking because I didn't have that bravado that comes with being a man in patriarchy. So what was the turning point for you when you realized, okay, I need to stop being this, trying to conform to what they want me to be and let me bring my true self to work? When did that happen? (laughs) Yeah. I was working at a startup that I was really excited to leave a good job at Amazon for around 2015, 2016, Uh but the culture was just really, really toxic. And I would call my best friend all the time 
she lives in South Africa now, but she actually <laughs> was living in Beijing at the time. And I would like call her with this crazy time difference and just tell her about all these ridiculous things that were happening to me and how I was being excluded and how I was being disrespected and how unhappy I was. And like, you know, I just wasn't able to get on with my job. And, you know, she said, you know, your life is too short. Like, why don't you just quit? And I just, yeah. the idea of quitting with no job to go to felt absurd. But at the same time, the idea of staying somewhere where I was so clearly not being given respect was also absurd. And as soon as I quit, I started reading stories about other women like Ellen Powell in her book, Reset, who like me had done everything right, worked really hard, but still were facing individual and systemic bias. And it was just like, this curtain fell and I realized that there was something bigger going on, you know, yeah. not, not like a conspiracy or anything like that, but rather just the cold, hard reality of discrimination and bias and prejudice against women, against women of color. There is a certain idea that if you are a woman in this organization, in this team, you have to play a certain role. I totally yeah. relate to what you're saying. And just to get a little bit more specific, what is that barrier? What is it? the bias or what does the discrimination look like um, for women of color? Like, yeah, what yeah, have I think some of your, like things your... Like I was, I was in a leadership role. So one of the initiatives I wanted to do was hire women into our grad intern role. Um, yeah. And I brought some incredible women candidates forward. And in the end, all the roles were given to men. And I asked for feedback. I said, well, there, you know, some really like interesting women in that mix. Like at least one of these roles could have gone to women. Yeah. And the reason I was given was, well, women don't know how to hustle. Wow. And I said, well, I mean, that's incredibly insulting to the women on this team currently hustling, currently smashing targets. That's not an excuse. That's not a reason. And, you know, that's just like one example of the type of like not evidence-based purely stereotyped feedback and and rationale that was operating there but there are lots of other examples like one of the things that i found really distressing was if i if i shared a reason for why i felt something that was happening was counterproductive to Uh me excelling in my role i always had to give so many more reasons for that it was never enough for me to just say hey that was really disruptive and 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 frustrating like a really good example like once someone you know, we're all on the call, we're all on calls on our phones. Someone just throws a keyboard across the room. Just literally it smashes into the wall. So I said like, hey, that's like incredibly disruptive. Also super dangerous. And everyone is just like, oh, chill out. Yeah. But had, had you done that, had you done that, it exactly. Yeah. I, so I now, yeah, exactly. If I'm throwing a keyboard across the room that's narrowly missing your head, pretty sure you wouldn't just be happy with someone saying chill out. So it's, it's the double standards. And I just felt like yeah. the double standards were so obvious to me. It felt like the guys could basically do anything they want and it was fine. And anytime anyone spoke up against it, there would be a mob of people to make you feel like you were stupid and make you feel like you were crazy. I mean, at the time, I didn't know about things like gaslighting and gaslighting (laughs) as a phrase. And this idea of like people making you question your reality, question events. Your experience. To make you feel crazy. I didn't know that that was a thing. I didn't know that it was well-documented in research. So I just thought maybe I was stupid. Maybe I was crazy. Like, am I being unreasonable? And thank God I have a good support network and good friends and good mentors who could say to me, you're definitely not being unreasonable. Like I've worked with you before. I've seen you before. This is not an issue that has ever happened to you before. So clearly something is broken here in that culture. And that's really what gave me the initiative and like the motivation to do something about it. Because I thought if I feel like this, 
what hope is there for women with less experience, 100%. younger than me, just starting out, people with less privilege, less credentials, less qualifications, like this is not okay. Yeah, because I mean, like in those kind of situations, like the gaslighting tends to doubt yourself and then that's also kind of productive. And whereas, so how did you end up? I mean, you've, I've, I've seen your background. You've, you've worked at Amazon at Groupon and then founded Hustle Crew. What is Hustle Crew? Tell us about Hustle Crew. So Hustle Crew is the community that I started after I quit my job. Really, I wanted to create a space where I felt I could connect with other people and ultimately get my next job. That was sort of what the, what the aim of it was. Like yeah. you reach a point in your career where you want to level up, you want to earn more, you want to transition into a different role, but you need a network of people to do that, especially in startups and especially yeah. in tech. Like people don't want to hire people they don't know. And I just thought, you know, I don't have the privilege of, oh, I'm an ex McKinsey person or I'm an yeah. ex Google person. And there's this like mafia of people who'll just connect you. So I thought, well, we can just make this ourselves. Like we can meet up every month, you know, who do you know at this company applying for? Who do you know at this company I'm applying for? But what was super interesting about Hustle Crew meetings was that we would end up spending a lot more of our time not talking about our applications and our cover letters and like, can you check this and check that? But actually just talking about the incidents of discrimination that we had faced. Yeah. So people would often be like, yeah, so I had to quit my last job because so-and-so was Islamophobic or, oh, I had to quit my last job because my boss was, you know, making moves on me. Or, yeah, I had to quit my last job because everyone on my team was actually incredibly insulting of my culture every time you we went to the wow. pub on Friday. And I just thought, I don't want to be dehumanized like this anymore. And I was like, this is super messed up. Like, <laughs> we're all incredibly talented, competent people who've been forced out of organizations because they failed you know, in having the awareness, the decency and the education to support us, respect us and treat us like equals. So that's what made me realize it wasn't enough to just be a careers community. I really had to draw the spotlight on structural oppression, individual bias and how privilege, our privilege just blinds us to the experiences of others. You know, there is a problem if your company all looks the same. <laughs> that is a serious problem because your lived experiences overlap so much, but then they completely contrast with the lived experiences of other people who are probably your customers or the employees you wish you could hire. You mentioned in a, in a previous talk that as a black woman, be prepared to be disliked. What advice yes. can you give to women of color who've experienced this both from men and from women, because there's yeah. thing as internalized misogyny. And yeah, I have one of the listeners who actually listened to one of your previous talks and she was, please, can you ask her that? <laughs> one of my, you know, bosses at Amazon, I remember once I came into a meeting, I had a cold mm -hmm. and I sat down opposite her at the table and a tissue in my hand fell onto the table. And she said, oh, Abba, are you stuffing your bra again? Oh, wow. I had something and similar I, happen to me. I had a face guard <laughs> on my shoulder because I'm allergic to tissue. So I, and then someone yeah. said to me, the team lead was like, did you bring your child's face club with you today? I was like, okay, I just brushed it off and carried on. And, and this would never have been mentioned to, to a man. Know, to and a also man. That, that's just not 
any of your damn business or appropriate. Why are you mentioning my bra? Why are you suggesting that I stuff it? There are so many things that are wrong in that comment. And I think one of the things that I've just realized is, you know, you're fucked either way. You know, people yeah. are going to kill you with these little microaggressions, these death by a million cuts. It's like 100%. one little comment every little day, chipping away at your confidence, chipping away at your confidence. So when I say be ready to be disliked, what I'm saying is when you try to assimilate, people are still going to try to make you feel bad, try to mm -hmm. other you. So right. rather just be your authentic self, even though people aren't ready for it, because then at least you're not doing that extra work of trying to pretend to be someone that you are not. But this is the issue of being your authentic self. There yes. aren't that many people like us yes. at the top in the mix, in the room. So when you're being authentic, you know, when you've got your twists in and you're doing your thing and you're speaking openly and you're interrupting people who interrupt you, people aren't ready for it. And they're just like, what? Hang on a minute. And, you know, sometimes I've even been in conversations where people are saying things like, oh, you know, you should be grateful you're even here. So <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So I'm a prop, not a person. Is that what you're saying? And I think, you know, it's really important for us to have our authentic energy so that we can actually start to realize who amongst the stakeholders we're collaborating with actually genuinely value our opinion and voice and who are just including us for optics because we right. don't want to be collaborating with people that are including us for optics. We want to be collaborating with people who genuinely value our opinion and, and what we can bring to the table. But I don't really have advice for like how to make it easier because it's no. horrible. It's a horrible feeling. Like, you know, I have this all the time, you know, in addition to Hustle Crew, I'm now VP of global community and belonging at Brandwatch. You know, we're a global software company, but like many tech companies, our leadership is mostly white, mostly male. A lot of the time I find myself the only woman of color in yeah. a conversation about how to make our culture more inclusive. And it's really hard to be the only one all the time speaking about what it's like to experience racism, to experience <laughs> gaslighting, to experience microaggressions. It's exhausting. And I have to be unlikable because sometimes, you know, I have to say, oh, well, that's a really interesting perspective. But. Insert male name. <laughs> but. <laughs> Are you really qualified to speak on racism as a white person? Or Absolutely. are you really qualified to speak about sexism as a man? And it's about embracing the discomfort. But I think that's where true leadership lies. I think true leaders don't want to be comfortable all the time. They're, they're happy to be uncomfortable and they're happy to make others uncomfortable because that's where we grow and that's where we learn. Okay, quick next question. How do you assert yourself as a woman in this uncomfortable situation? I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've experienced all of this, as you've said. It is really exhausting. And, I, and I've spoken to a lot of women in the same situation. How do you discern when, when you should actually push back and when yeah. you should just like, well, Leave yeah, that, I do agree with you that it's day. really, really important to pick your battles. And I always just think about like, you know, the level of influence in the room, you know, when I'm speaking to senior stakeholders, the people who I report into the yeah. people who, you know, sign my paycheck, the people who will determine my success in the role, it's actually really important for me to assert myself in those spaces because I right. need them to understand that I know my stuff. And one of the things that really helps me do this is I have like a few phrases that I just like keep ready to roll out that help me navigate difficult conversations easier. So one thing I'll, I often like to say, if I know I'm about to say something that's going to make people feel uncomfortable is I warn them, I warn them. I'm like, okay, so I've got something to share. It might be hard to hear. It oh, might wow. make us feel uncomfortable, <laughs> but I think it's really important for us to say it. And then that way people aren't blindsided. Yeah. Another thing that I like to do a lot of the time is, you know, just before I start talking about something or presenting about something, if it's about race, 
any other type of identity that could be oppressed in any way. You know, let's talk about disability. Let's talk about gender identity. I'll just start off by saying, hey, just so you know, a lot of the time when we talk about this stuff, it can make us feel emotions we don't usually feel at work. We might feel guilty. We might feel ashamed. We might feel embarrassed. And I just want to warn you that that's okay. But before you respond, I'd like to invite you to just take a beat. Wow. Because you want to respond from a place where you are compassionate and patient, not defensive and reactive. So I use language like this all the time. And I even say things I like- I love how you said that. Yeah, because I think it's, it, it's really important for us, yeah. for us to do that. And, and I'll, I'll even sometimes say like, okay, you know, if I feel like I'm going to have to disagree with the group, I'll even say like, hey, by the way, like, you know, I totally understand that I'm speaking at this from my perspective, from the belonging perspective. I'm worried that if I don't say this, it's going to come up later. Like wow, this is yeah. a risk that I see that that could come up later. So I just want to share this now. Or I'll say, hey, by the way, someone has said something problematic in this conversation. And I just want to flag it now because I'm worried if I don't flag it, this person might say it again. And the next time they say it, it could be a problem for the company. So this is what happened. So I think just having language like that ready to use to set up uh -huh, the uncomfortable uh -huh, conversation uh -huh. is a really powerful tool and it gets people prepared. It is really empowering actually. Like I never thought about that. Like I think often we're so easily angered or upset and then we switch into defense mode. But yeah, you also mentioned something about decolonizing education and the yes. role of identity and privilege because this kind of all ties in, right? Because the experiences that we've had growing up in our schools as well, like it, we bring that to the workplace. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to reflect on moments like Black History Month mm -hmm. and International Women's Day, International right. Women's Month. If you go to any of the corporate events that happen for these events, the, I mean, these months, these days, what you'll find is all of the people in that room are women or black people. And you would almost start to believe that it's women that created sexism or black people that invented racism. Now, why would people who are oppressed and marginalized create a system to oppress and marginalize themselves? <laughs> of course, that's not how it happened. But when you think about curriculum and think about how we learn about slavery or how we learn about the suffragettes, we're always leaving out the part of the people with power that continue to keep those groups oppressed. And this is why I'm saying the story is incomplete. There are men who genuinely probably want to do more to promote gender equality in their workplace, but are failing to make the connection in the role that they play. There are also the same men who have people on their team where the men are paid more than women for the same job. And you know what's and really interesting? Is that like, I, I don't know, like, I mean, this is what I've experienced is that women will tend to talk about this amongst themselves as if it's taboo when really it should be the topic on the table. It should be completely open and mainstream. Do you know what I, I mean? I agree. I agree. You know, one of the reasons why it's, it's challenging to do that is because we don't have enough power yet. So there are yeah. probably women who have done that and then they've been fired or they've been demoted or they've been yeah. passed up for promotion. You know, we are still penalized for behavior that men can do and not receive any penalty for, which is really messed up. But yeah, you know, one more thing on like decolonizing the curriculum, like it's not just about what children learn at school. Like I want all of us to constantly question the media that we consume, whether it's the news, whether it's the books that we read, you know, yeah. 
when I read books like Why I No Longer Talk About Race with White People to by Rennie Edda Lodge, and when I read books like A Color Natives, I found out a lot about UK race movements and civil rights that I didn't know about. And I asked my husband because I was like, well, I only came to the UK in my teens. So fair enough. I wasn't in this education system. So I asked my husband who's born and raised in the UK about this. Now, of course, being a white man, he was just like, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I was like, well, what did you learn at school? Like, how do you think black people got to the UK? Like, do you think we just came on our own, like on a rocket ship, just like flew over and then like oppressed ourselves here? Like, and I just think that's, that's the thing that I, I feel is super important in a similar way. You know, when I talk to my in-laws, there's so much about UK black history that they don't know about. And I think that's so messed up. Like, what is this cloak of white privilege that you're so disinterested in the experiences of other, there's this whole period of history where you couldn't get enough of black and brown people. Like you couldn't function without black and brown people when it was all empire and colonization. Yeah. Right. And now that's over. It's like, you want to pretend that didn't happen at all? Seriously? Is that what we're doing here? Kakala called it willful collective amnesia (laughs) about the events of the past. And I just thought that was such a great way to coin it. It's really interesting what you said, because like I grew up in South Africa I learned English is like, we've learned it to the point that I, I, we weren't even exposed to our mother tongues. And so when I came to, to Germany and I remember being in a team meeting and it was both British, German, and, uh, and someone said to me, oh, you don't have an accent. I'm like, what accent are you looking for? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, like, like I have, of course I have an accent. It's just not the accent that you expect me to have in your mind. So that was really interesting. And, and I think over time as well, like just learning more about colonization and the influence it has had on shaping our identity and you know as you said like our parents they thought it was best that we learn the queen's english and (laughs) so that we fit in and succeed in the society but yeah of course like now we have this privilege of like actually teaching our kids like you know you can speak both languages and it's okay this is part of who you are and, and be confident in it i mean do you have any rules or boundaries for like working both remotely or, you know, if you're the only person of color on your team, as you said, like it's, it's exhausting. How do you handle that? How do you decide, okay, this is my problem. And yeah, I think it's really important for all of us to do the role that we were hired to do. And when we're doing anything that's beyond that, we make it really explicit. Like this isn't what I was hired to do, but I'm happy to help you on this because we're often volunteering ourselves for everything. Like, Oh, I'm going to be the in-house DNI expert just because I'm the only person who doesn't lie. And it's just like, no, you don't have to do that. You can get them to pay someone who's a professional to do it. So that's the first thing, you know, don't always stretch yourself beyond your role. Cause at the end of the day, you're getting judged for what you got hired to do. And you could potentially be like sabotaging yourself by you know, not focusing on those things. But the second thing I'd say is like, it's so important for us to focus on our, our well-being, you know, now more than ever with everything uh-huh. that's been going on. But, you know, I personally, I have often really busy days, really like intense back-to-back meetings and stuff like that. So I like to make sure I do something for myself before my day begins. So like before I turn on my phone, before I open my laptop, I like to wake up in the morning. I mean, it's easy for me because I don't have young kids. I can write in my gratitude journal. I can meditate. I can go for a run. I can have a whole hour, hour and a half if I get up earlier to myself, device-free, and then I can decide to start my work day. And I just always find that the days where I have me time before I open up Slack, Zoom, emails, 
are always so much better than the days where I don't because I'm grounded in myself and my purpose and I am not my job, yeah. <laughs> right? I am, I am my own individual person and, and Hustle Crew is something that I do and Brand Watch is something that I do, but beyond all of those things, I'm, I'm a wife, I'm a friend, I'm a person, I'm an individual. And I think it's so important for me to ground myself in that before I start being pulled in other directions by other people. So that's the first thing I do. And then the other thing that I'd say to just like, protect myself is like I have rules like I just find that for me I respond really well to rules so like one of the rules I really like is laptop and phone off like at dinner like once it's dinner time yeah. it's like okay this is like the time to start winding down so I'll like turn everything off I'll have dinner with my partner and then the rest of the evening it's just like I can read or I can like watch something but I can't be on social media I can't be checking stuff because then I just so, find it really hard to sleep. <laughs> are, are you really strict with that? Because I struggle with this and, and now I've gone to the point where I actually just leave my phone in a different room but I really struggle with it. Yeah so that's what I try to do. That's what I try to do. Like usually what I'll try to do is I mean it is quite hard because you know my sister is like in a different time zone or yeah. like I have friends in different time zones so there are times I will actually want to like call someone in the evening but it's more that like the platforms that I'm on during the day, I don't want them to be the platforms that I'm on in the evening. Like, I don't want to be on Twitter at night. I don't want to be on Instagram at night. Yeah. I want to be like talking to people I care about, not like watching, you know, millions of strangers share their thoughts. So that's the sort of thing where I say, yeah, this is, this is me time now. And I, and I really enjoy, you know, reading or like watching movies or catching up on my favorite show. And I want to make sure I have time to do that or even just catch up on life admin instead of just like working, working, working yeah. endlessly. Oh, that's interesting, you know, because like the startup life and, and the name of your, your company, Hustle Crew, it kind of gives you this feeling that you're always hustling, but <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> I think that was absolutely the case for like the longest time ever. That was the case. That was true. Yeah. But, you know, the company's four and a half years old now mm -hmm. and we have been able to scale. We've been able to hire a team. Yeah. I've also reached a level of seniority in my job where I'm doing more strategic stuff than just pure implementation. And mm -hmm. I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that, you know, sometimes you are on the hamster wheel, yeah. but other times you're not. And I think you just have to savor the moments where you're not. And I think I've just really, really learned to value rest and recharging. Like I can't be busy all the time. <laughs> I need to rest and recharge in order to have really productive days. You also authored a book called Dream Big, Hustle Hard very quickly. What's that about? One of the things I realized when I was first doing the early Hustle Crew meetups, like this is back in 2016, is that people would often ask the same questions like, hey, yeah. Abadesi, how do I find a mentor? Hey, Abadesi, how do I negotiate the salary? Hey, Abadesi, I just graduated. I don't even know which job is right for me in a startup. Do I want to do uh -huh. product? Do I want to do sales? Like, how do I know? And I just realized, you know, like a true product thinker, there's a scalable way for me to solve this problem. Like instead of always just replying to these messages, I could just write a book. Because if I write right. a book, then people can just read the book. And one of the things that I always found really demotivating when I first started my career, you know, I love reading self-help books and career yeah. books and that sort of thing. They're always by like white guys or white people or like, you know, <laughs> middle-aged white people. And I was just like, you don't know what it's like to show up in the interview called Abadesio Sensade and try to like now start pitching yourself. You know what I mean? Like you're walking in there like, hi, I'm James Franklin. I went to Harvard. I was like, it's not the same for you and me. You so don't belong to that boys club. Yeah. So I just felt it would be really important for not only me to write a guide for people trying to break into startups because there's so little information about that, 
but also to write it from the perspective of someone that is not in the dominant groups, someone who has faced unique challenges. And that's, that's what I really set out to do. And it's just been incredible to see uh, how many people have really, really resonated with it and how many people have actually been able to get jobs through it. You know, I just really wanted to talk about things like imposter syndrome, like fear of failure wow. and all the things that hold us back that other people don't necessarily address in their books. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's incredibly relevant. So I'm guessing that you're definitely a fan of multiple income streams. Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's really important to diversify your income. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, like times are changing. And I think especially during this corona pandemic, it's so easy to like lose your job. But knowing that you can have other forms and ways to monetize your skills, I think it's, it's just amazing. Who are some of the women of color in tech that you look up to? Wow, there are so many. I really, really, like I said, Ellen Powell, who wrote Reset, I think has shared so much incredible information about diversity, equity, inclusion, including launching projectinclude.org. And if people haven't been there, they should really yeah. check out the site and the resources. Huge fan of Arlen Hamilton and everything that she's done for I mean, decolonizing VC, like she just <laughs> came up and was like, yes, I'm a woman, I'm black and I'm gay, but I'm going to start investing in black entrepreneurs because none of you seem to be doing it. She's incredible. She's written a book. It's about downtime, which I really love here in the UK. I'm a huge fan of folks like Deborah Okenla of Your Startup, Your Story. She turned something that was initially just a WhatsApp group for, you know, young startup folks into an actual social enterprise and wow. something that's really change the tech ecosystem. Sharmadine Reed, the founder of Beauty Stack, what she's doing to create a marketplace and space for beauty professionals is incredible. Really, she's empowering women. She's dealing with an underserved but incredibly valuable part of the economy that has previously been ignored. Two other incredible founders, Jocelyn and Rachel of Afrocentrics. They were recently featured in Vogue and The Guardian. I love their hair care products. I just think they're <laughs> incredible. The first Afro hair care line to be stocked in Whole Foods started making the products at university in their bathtubs, you know, now are shipping across the globe. So they're just, you know, these are just, just a few. Kike Onuinde, the founder of BYP Network. I was an investor in their last round where they crowdfunded. Very proud of that fact. What they've been able to do to accelerate the advancement of black professionals careers through events through content is amazing and she's very much about empowering the community to define their own future and own their future and i think we we definitely want to see a lot more of that yeah because we definitely have the power to, to make these kind of changes and, and even if it's yeah using our, our money to make a difference between like the products we support and last question what are the brands that are doing it right at the moment? Who are some of the brands right now that are doing inclusion and diversity right? That's a really good question. I think saying right almost feels like the journey is done <laughs> and, there's, and there's nothing left to do. And I don't think anyone is, is quite there yet. But I think yeah. it's been really interesting to look at companies like Jack Dorsey Square, who have launched programs to increase representation of senior level roles and then actually succeeded in doing that. So for them, it was just setting benchmarks, like no one can get an offer unless there's at least 50% underrepresented people at that stage of the recruitment. So I think that's really fascinating. Starbucks have recently announced that they're actually like changing incentives for performance bonuses to encourage managers to nurture talent from underrepresented backgrounds as well nice. as hire them, which I think is really cool. Microsoft, the same. So I think it's about people that are really putting their money where their mouth is yeah. and saying yeah. that this isn't just about 
optics for us anymore. Like, you know, we know that money moves people. So right. we're actually like creating those those commercial incentives for people to behave differently. And one of the things that I found really interesting is like when mentors like either on Twitter become really accessible to underrepresented founders and say, hey, like reach out to me first 10, I'll have a look at your pitch deck or whatever and give you some feedback. I found that so cool. Like, you know, as a, because everyone has access to Twitter and if you find the right mentors, it's just amazing. So yeah, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, in an ideal world, what would you like to see for the future of black women in tech? I think what I would like to see is, first of all, more people to stop being racist. <laughs> because I mean, there's just too many mean racist people out there and they need uh -huh. to just stop. They need to stop being assholes and dicks and rude and they need to go get an education about equality and privilege and they need to be as curious about being anti-racist as they are curious about you know sourdough starchers and making their own kombucha like we really need to do better and then what i'd like to see is like i would just love to see black women like owning their uniqueness owning their voice owning their energy and being unapologetic because you know you will find the people that honor you support you and respect you and the people that don't are just time wasters anyway. <laughs>